Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Surgical training is a series of tremendous transitions, starting from the transition from medical school to residency, from junior to senior resident, and then the equally big step of going from residency to fellowship. In this episode, we were lucky enough to be joined by two fantastic Calgary Surgical Fellows. Dr. Greg Knapp is the Calgary Surgical Oncology Fellow, and Dr. Salila Hashmi is the Calgary Hepatobiliary Fellow. We talked to them today about how to get the most out of your fellowship, making that mental mind shift from being a resident to being a fellow, as well as the complexities of applying to a fellowship, which reference letters to use, and even get into the details of applying to a U.S. fellowship if you're a Canadian applicant. Check out the links below for more tips and tricks. Can you start us off by just telling us a little bit about uh, where you guys uh, both grew up and what your training pathway has been, just so our listeners can, can learn a bit about uh, both of you. Okay. Amir, thank you. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Ball, for having us here. Um, so I'm originally from uh, Pakistan. I lived in Karachi, which is the largest city of Pakistan, um, for first 24 years of my life. Uh, went to medical school there. And then as soon as I graduated, I came to the U.S., spent two and a half years in the immunology lab at Emory in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, worked under uh, my great mentors, Dr. Uh, Alan Kirk, Dr. Chris Larson, and uh, Thomas Pearson. And after that, I ended uh, or, you know, did my surgery residency and critical care fellowship at Emory. And now I am here in Calgary pursuing a hepatobiliary surgery fellowship. And uh, Greg, how about yourself? Where did you grow up and what, what has your training pathway been? Uh, again, uh, I'll echo Salila's um, uh, thoughts. Uh, thanks for having me. My my pathway is not nearly as exciting or as global as uh, Salila's. Um, I grew up in uh, southern Ontario on the south side of the lake in a town called Grimsby, which um, no one from Toronto knows where that is. Um, but it's about a 45-minute drive. Um, and I uh, went to... Uh, undergrad at McMaster um, and then did um, actually applied to medical school and, and graduate school at the same time uh, and probably as a shock to most people including myself I got into both and um, was able to defer uh, medical school to go to London uh, to do um, a one-year master's uh, in international health policy um, at the London School of Economics. Uh, I then came back did medical school at Mac uh, and then went uh, went out to Halifax uh, to do my general surgery training. Uh, five years there. Uh, and then I actually had a year uh, in the community as a general surgeon um, in the small town of uh, Woodstock, New Brunswick, um, as kind of a gap year between uh, residency and then my fellowship training um, in New York at Memorial Sloan Kettering and then here uh, in Calgary in surgical oncology. 
Greg, what prompted you to to pursue a fellowship in surgical oncology? And I'm, I'm curious, you know, especially given your tract, how early did you make that decision along your pathway? So I was definitely a late bloomer. Um, I, um, you know, when I, I, I thought about this a lot over the years. Uh, and I think one of the, you know, one of the factors was I, I think I did it at least initially struggle to kind of find a real mentor that that had that just really clicked with me kind of early in my training and then kind of on top of that um i just had a real broad interest like i i just seemed to love everything like it, general surgery was definitely the right fit but slotting in to you know where did i want to live what kind of practice did i want to have you know what was going to be my niche was tough uh, and so i actually bounced around i did you know, I, I did a, a two-month elective in Cape Town at Tigerberg in trauma. Uh, I, I then ended up doing senior electives in pediatric surgery. And it was only after I came back from my, pe- my, my pediatric surgery electives on to surgical oncology that I had that kind of like, oh, yeah, like this is the right fit. Um, I don't think I realized how much I didn't like pediatric surgery until I came back uh, to surgical oncology. So... I, I didn't, I honestly didn't really know until I was like probably halfway through my fourth year, uh, almost into my fifth year. Uh, and so that really, um, you know, that, that definitely created some challenges, uh, in terms of getting into, uh, my surgical oncology fellowship ultimately, um, um, because I didn't have that kind of lead time. Um, but, um, you know, that was my, uh, that was my, that was my kind of my journey into it. What brought me, you know, why surgical oncology? I think what really got me going was just, I liked, I I liked the complexity of the kind of multidisciplinary decision-making. I like the fact that like you had to be like, I I admired the the surgical oncologists that, you know, because they, they, they really had to be on top of um, kind of a rapidly advancing front of knowledge. Um, and on top of that, the ones I worked with in Halifax were really amongst the most kind of technically comfortable um, in the abdomen in a wide range of scenarios. And so I also really, I found that appealing. So for me, it was um, a switching of gears a little bit too. I started, when I started residency, I thought I wanted to do a transplant and, you know, the two and a half years that I spent in the lab had sort of set the stage for that. But it wasn't until my third year of residency that um, I decided I wanted to pursue hepatobiliary surgery. And I think my mentor, Dr. Juan Sarmiento, had a huge role to play in this, um, you know, both for my interest and my uh, perseverance to pursue this. Um, You know, the complexity of the patients, the disease processes that we see, um, the operative finesse that's required for hepatobiliary surgery and the ability to take care of both the benign and malignant disease processes is what really drew me to this field. And uh, that's how I ended up here. Now, the whole uh, idea of this episode is really to try to explore um, a, a wide range of issues around pursuing a fellowship. Um, you know, everything from how to, how to get into a fellowship, how to apply to one, what drew you, drew you to one. And I think one of the interesting things about fellowships is, is sometimes about timing. Like, um, I think, Greg, you sort of had an interesting path for starting fellowship in that you spent some time uh, as a community surgeon uh, prior to uh, coming back and pursuing a fellowship. What, 
what made you want to come back and do a fellowship and what was that transition like and how do you think that year um, that you spent as a community surgeon changed your perspective and experience during your uh, subsequent fellowships? So uh, to, to address the first question, um, you know, what made me kind of come back? I think it's important um, to kind of just state that like I ended up applying because of that lag time for my fellowship in my fifth year. So I knew like I knew at least by the by, by, by like a year five, I want to do surgical oncology. We've got to make this happen um, and, and apply then. And then, you know, would have, you know, knew I had a spot by the, you know, kind of say June of my fifth year. So I, I knew I had this gap here. So I didn't go into a community being like, I want to be a community general surgeon and then and then switch out. And I think, you know, I think that the people minor and because I've got a bit of taste of both, I think that that would be difficult. I think it would be difficult if you were like, I'm a community general surgeon for several years, certainly not impossible. And I've met some interesting people along the way who have done that, including one of my mentors in Halifax. So totally possible, but I think it's quite difficult because you kind of get out of the kind of academic, um, uh, flow. But, um, you know, so I think that that's kind of, you know, you know, point number one, I think point number two uh, was I thought that that year in the community was brilliant. Um, I loved it. I thought like you, you work like a dog for five years, you know, the fifth year is a total grind. Um, and then all of a sudden you kind of finish. And then I had these like 12 months to a decompress a little bit, but B, I, I was working in a rural hospital and, kind of you know, northern New Brunswick, there was just two surgeons, I was applying my kind of general, general surgery skill set and knowledge base that I had just spent 12 years cramming the nuances. Um, I got to apply that kind of right away. Um, and so for me, I thought it was a great year. It was almost like, um, you know, in some countries where they have that kind of forced year of like military service, um, you know, it was like, I probably wouldn't have chosen to do that um, had I, you know, crafted my ideal plan. But I, I thought it was a great year to just get out there, pick up some skills, apply the knowledge, make some mistakes, learn how to run an office, how to deal with, you know, interesting personalities in a small community. Um, and so I, I took a huge amount out of it. Um, in terms of the transition, boy, like what a culture shock, like going from rural New Brunswick to Memorial Sloan Kettering, you know, that was an interesting transition, um, you know, from kind of flannel shirts to like silk ties. Um, it was, uh, it was neat. Uh, and that was, it was, you know, obviously it, 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 it was a transition, but it was one that, you know, at the end of the day, I still had I still had a like a I was still coming into it with like a pretty confident skill set. And so I think that that although I didn't have maybe the pedigree of some of my colleagues, um, I, I I certainly felt comfortable with with what I had to offer. Uh, and, and I knew why I was there, you know, to pick up that kind of nuanced, um, um, you know, oncology uh, training and, and, and management. So. Um, the transition actually wasn't that bad and, and it was actually a real thrill and, and, and looking back on it now um, it's a it's a really neat juxtaposition between two systems you know as you've mentioned uh, a couple of times you, you know you trained in the U.S. for a period of time and now you're training in Canada where 
we're curious and you don't have to hold back, I promise, despite most of the listeners being Canadian. Um, what, what are some of the differences you notice? Um, it can be at the fellowship level, but certainly at the resident level between the U.S. and Canada um, uh, in terms of in terms of training in general. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, you know, so one of the first things that I noticed both for the residents and the fe uh, fellows for, you know, being here in Canada was uh, autonomy. Um, I think both in terms of operative autonomy and clinical autonomy. Um, I feel like the residents and fellows get way more um, than I had experienced and seen in, in the US, which certainly reminds me of my time that I spent at Grady, which is a county hospital that, um, you know, us as residents at Emory spent probably if not half, you know, majority of our time um, doing trauma and especially general surgery there. Um, you know, in the academic centers, it's it's a little difficult um, for both the clinical and operative autonomy because you have, you know, constraints like turnover times for the operating room. So there's it's going to be hard for the attendings to give you, you know, from skin to skin sort of time to do those cases because, you know, they'll probably let you or you'll decide on a part of the procedure that you really want to do and they'll let you take lead on it or they'll let you start the case with a resident, but it'll be, you know, difficult for them to let you go ahead and, you know, take three or four hours at a case just because they're constrained in the time that they can give you. Um, you know, and the second thing I would say is that the attendings are a little bit more approachable. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure some of the U.S. attendings may not agree to me uh, with me on this, but I feel like the, the relationship between residents and fellows, um, for lack of a better word, I would say it's more on a uh, friendlier terms than, um, you know, in the U.S. Like I would be scared to talk about some general things in the U.S., which here I can just bring it up, which could uh, also be because now I'm a fellow, um, you know, I'm particularly more comfortable talking to attendings than I was when I was a resident, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting, Salila. You know, having a lot of us up here, as you know, do our fellowships in the U.S. and then often come back. Not always, but but usually we do. And there's certainly something is uh, there's something to what to what you just said. There's a very different relationship, and it's a neat relationship between the fellow and the and the faculty. I think because um, to some extent, I experienced the same thing when I went uh, both to Atlanta and Indianapolis and and elsewhere as well. Uh, that relationship is is quite close and it's quite neat, and it's something you get to carry with you for um, really the rest of your of your career. Uh, a lot of us that have good experiences certainly certainly do. Um, what about in terms of workload for the residents, um, outlook, um, patient care, um, you know, individual responsibilities surrounding patients? Do you have any comments on differences uh, with re that regard? Um, you know, initially when I came, I thought, oh my God, the residents here are not working as hard as they were in the U.S., but certainly that has changed over time. Um, you know, I think we work equally hard here as well as back home. Um, you know, some of the differences were that our medical records are electronic. So, you know, by the time I finish rounds here, all the notes are written, all the orders are done, which for an intern or a junior resident back home, that's like the first hour of the day after you finish your rounds. And you really, you're not allowed to be in the operating room until you finish that work. Um, so, you know, that takes a little bit away from the operative experience, but then it also teaches you, um, you know, time management that you have to finish your work in the first hour, you have to prioritize things. And then, you know, especially if you have to make it to the operating room. So uh, I think 
both have uh, their advantages. Um, you know, one thing, and I can only obviously speak about um, the residency at Emory. Um, I think residents here, certainly, I love the fact that they have half day um, here where they have dedicated time. Um, you know, gradually as the residents, when I started, we only had one hour, um, you know, and that was just a lecture given by one of the attendings. And then, you know, we had, it's gradually moved to two hours, but certainly having a half day to yourself, um, you know, I think it's, it's great uh, for educational purposes because it is very hard to find time during a grueling schedule to, uh, you know, study and keep up. Uh, with the academic work as well. The the truth is, you know, both places I did my fellowship in the U.S., obviously one was Emory like you, the other being Indiana, uh, Indiana University, uh, as well as lots of the places I visited uh, doing grand rounds and so on and professorships. The reality is like an hour a week that's protected is sort of pretty typical. And I think, you know, the residencies in Canada, uh, you're right, they're, they're much better structured in terms of a lot uh, more significant um, protected uh, educational time. So, you know, that's something that, that we're, we're very lucky to have in Canada. I wanted to shift gears here a little bit, you know, start uh, really getting into this idea of making that transition from being a resident to being a fellow. And I'm, and I'm trying to do this myself as I uh, head towards my own fellowship uh, in colorectal in Vancouver uh, in July. You know, uh, obviously, surgery is a very graduated process, and training is a graduated process. And so, how did, how did uh, let's maybe start with Salila? How did you approach making that transition mentally uh, from being a resident uh, to being a fellow? And and what do you think some of the key differences are, um, just in terms of um, how you run your team, how, or 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 how you think about your role? Um, just overall, what, how do you how do you think it's different being a fellow versus being a resident? Yeah. So as you know, I'll say that as a fellow, you are the backbone of the team. Um, residents will come and go. Um, so you know, you you are going to be there for the year or for two years. So you have to set the precedent for everybody else on the team. You know, you want to be the team that every resident wants to come to and you know be a part of. Um, so, um, you know, that's, that's on you, how, how you set the mood and the tone and everything. Like you can't be confused about a plan and expect the team to follow the plan. Like you have to have a clear thinking in your mind. If something's not clear and you have to run it by attendings, just be upfront about it. Listen, this is something I'm going to talk to the attendings and I'm going to circle back and get back to you about a final plan. Um, and you know, whatever you have final plans, just go ahead and do those. Um, the other thing is also I'll say that, um, you know, Dr. Delman, my program director, always told us that when you're preparing for cases, be prepared that if the attending cannot make to the operating room, you should be able to do the case. And, you know, it certainly holds true for fellowship and not only being able to do the case, but also taking residence through the case. So, you know, you're not only that you're learning, um, you know, new techniques or, you know, you're you're improving on your techniques, but you also have to take a junior resident or a senior resident even like, you know, through a case and, you know, give them feedback how they can do things better. So like you, how, how you expose something so that they can do better for you overall, um, you know. And then it's it's just very more personal, like every patient is your patient, every complication is your complication, every success story just feels a little bit more personal. Um, you know, this is your family and you have to take care of it. So 
yeah, I mean, and, but it's, it's, it's fun and it's rewarding and, you know, it's great. I think the, I think the points that, that Salila brought up are, are, are bang on. And I think, you know, when I was looking, thinking about, about uh, some of the material for this, for this podcast, I think that, I think that the, the, the ownership component, um, um, and to use that word, I think that's really, for me, what kind of separates, um, you know, the, the resident fellow consultant, like transition. And as we already kind of alluded to, like, I, I kind of had this 12 months where, you know, it, it was just me, right. And there was nobody else. Um, um, and, and I think that, that that probably accelerated a little bit, um, that idea that, you know, as a fellow, um, you're, you definitely, I think, I think the, I think you not only feel a greater responsibility, um, but um, it is it, you know, it is placed on you, and I, and I think that that is is a really key part of that transition through fellowship into uh, into a consultant post um, is is both taking taking that on um, and then embracing that because I think uh, that is what differentiates. Um, you know, ultimately kind of the trainee from the kind of from the ultimate provider. Right. Um, and there's like with that change in mindset, it, I think it subtly changes your approach to like how you see patients in clinic. All of a sudden, like you're not kind of missing things. You're like, OK, like in order to get the patient from like this is the diagnosis and the workup to the operating room, there's a whole bunch of other steps. Right. All the logistics, all of the, you know, all of the the stuff that you're not really privy to in, in residency, where you're just focused on saying, okay, like this is the problem. This is what we're going to do. And then all of a sudden in fellowship and then, you know, the, and the beginning of, of your career, you realize that there's all these other things that you got to do to get the person safely to the operating room, to get them through the operation. And then like out the other side. Um, and a lot of those aren't like in textbooks. They're not taught. They are center dependent. Um, and in those um, I think those all get kind of wrapped up with a true ownership of that like scenario and that patient encounter. Um, and I think that that's what kind of defines a big part of, of, of what's different about a resident versus a fellow kind of just in broad strokes. And one comment I'll make is also um, like involve the team and ask them for feedback. They may not like your style of leadership and you may have to change gears and, you know, do things a little differently. Um, I hadn't worked with Canadian residents before, so I don't know what they're used to as as a fellow. So, you know, I have to stop and ask them, is this working for you guys? Like, is this working for the team overall? Like, ask your attendings, are you doing a good job? So, and, you know, you'll be surprised that you will get some feedback that will certainly stop you from doing what you're doing and make you think and, you know, change some of the things and actually make you better. So be, be prepared for that, too. I think that's uh, really, uh, I'm going to use that advice very, very closely, um, hopefully here come July. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit now about uh, some specifics about uh, pursuing a fellowship. And uh, maybe first, we, we've kind of touched on this a little bit with with you guys about um, actually figuring out what kind of fellowship uh, you, you both pursued. Um, maybe, uh, Greg, you can just talk maybe in, in broad strokes. Uh, you, know, you, you talked about what 
uh, excited you about surgical oncology. Is there, what, what sort of things do you think residents should think about when trying to pursue uh, a fellowship in a particular area, but also about uh, where to pick a specific spot or a specific program to do fellowship? Because um, that's also, I think, a, a key aspect of doing a fellowship is really trying to figure out where to go and, and where you really fit in. Definitely. Um, for me, the the year at um, MSK, um, you know, prior to, to coming to Calgary, uh, I think kind of captures an interesting, um, you know, anecdote uh, to share because this that that fellowship was um, was 12 months. It was it was a new fellowship in um, global oncology. And I was actually the first fellow in this new stream um, where it's kind of six months of clinical, six months of research. Um, and I, the only reason why I got there is because I, I ended up at the end of residency, you know, really realizing that like I was going into surgical oncology or that was my interest. Um, and I was still cultivating all along kind of a research portfolio in, you know, first global health and then you know, kind of global surgery. Um, and, and then realizing that I, you know, I was going to have to find some way of marrying that with surgical oncology. And I hadn't really found someone that had done that was doing that. I didn't have a mentor kind of in that space. And so I literally just spent, you know, several weeks kind of looking and reading and doing some research, um, and, and found Peter Kingham at MSK. And, and I just sent him a cold email. I just sent him an email out of the blue saying, listen, like this is my, basically this is my story. This is my, these are my interests. It looks like you guys are doing some research uh, and have this program in um, your global cancer disparities initiative um, that, that totally jives with, with where I want to go. Um, can we just chat? And that's basically how, you know, we had a conversation and then one thing led to another and, and, and he was like, you know what, we got someone coming down the pipeline that may be a perfect fit for you. Um, and so that's how I ended up in New York. Um, and, and so I think it just, I think it speaks to, um, you may not have someone that is going to tell, you know, it may not be obvious, right. And where you're going to do fellowship and someone may not come to you and say, Greg, you know, you should go to Toronto for surgical oncology, or you should go to Calgary, you know, depending on your mentorship environment, you, you very much um, may need to, um, you know, take it into your own hands, think outside the box, think broadly, um, and kind of look for opportunities that aren't necessarily, um, advertised um, because I think that people respond really well to uh, uh, you know initiative and and um, and when you come to them with ideas uh, and particularly when you come with them ideas that are kind of coupled with kind of solutions or a plan you know people are very responsive to that uh, and um, and so uh, you know, that's a little bit rambling and a little bit of an offshoot, but, you know, my, certainly my, my first fellowship at MSK was, was not, that was not a textbook, you know, that was not an advertised, uh, you know, you know, kind of textbook year, you know, that kind of came about in, in a, a different way, but it was probably one of the most fundamental years of my training uh, and, and really will have a massive impact on my, on my career 
trajectory, especially uh, on the academic side. Um, and of course, you know, Calgary was very, very responsive to that. You know, when I came back to Calgary and said, hey, I may, I, you know, there may be an opportunity for me, you know, to do a year in New York. You know, what do you guys think about that? Could we make that work? You know, Dr. Mack and the Calgary group was super supportive. They're like, yeah, of course, like we can, we can, we can make this work. Like we can find a, a way of allowing you to do both. Um, you know, well, you know, you know, potentially keeping your spot here. And so there was a whole, you know, there was a lot of wiggle room that you didn't really realize actually existed. Um, if you came to people with a, um, with a plan. I think it's so key in this whole thing is yes, you need to find a fellowship, uh, program that, that you want to go to. But I think the key in this is that you really also have to really understand what you want out of your fellowship and what, your overall plan is because I think uh, people can help you move that plan forward. But if you don't have a plan, then it's hard, uh, I think, for any group um, to really make that happen and to cultivate your interests. How about for you, Salila? How did you um, how did you decide on coming to Calgary, and, and what were the specific uh, things that you were looking for in a fellowship? And I, and I know you did a fellowship prior to coming to, to Calgary as well. Yeah. So, you know, when I was, uh, I wanted to do hepatobotary and there are three essentially routes to do it. You can do transplant surgery and go to a program which has a high volume HPV service with transplant. You can do a surgical oncology fellowship and, um, you know, potentially either do an extra year of HPV or make your surgical oncology fellowship such that you spend more time on HPV services, or you can just do a HPB fellowship. So, you know, again, you have to know what you want at the end of the day. And despite coming from a program, um, you know, Emory is very heavy on surge onc training. Um, I knew that I wanted to keep my general surgery and, um, you know, add uh, a multitude of uh, hepatobiliary surgery in addition to that. And so that's why I went, um, you know, for the hepatobiliary surgery route through the fellowship council. Um, it's interesting when I tell people that I'm training at Calgary and, you know, knowing my global history, they're like, are you a Canadian? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, it's a great program. It's one of the, you know, 14 programs that are in the match for the fellowship council. And so, you know, the expertise that are available here, the case volume, the variety, you know, and also the general feel that you get once you interview, like, you know, these, this is going to be your family for a year or two. Are you going to be happy here? Can you work with these people? Do you see them as your future mentors? And like Dr. Ball mentioned, like, you know, this is going to be lifelong re relationships for you. So all that, you know, plays a role in deciding where you want to go. That's well said, Salila. Uh, maybe we'll start with with Greg for the sort of next two part question. Um, there, there's no question. It depends, of course, and you sort of alluded to it, who your mentors maybe have relationships with. But how do you how do you get in the door? Do you guys think um, of a given fellowship or fellowships if you don't have any personal connections to it? Um, you know, Greg, you talked a little bit about about your your cold email, and I think that's great advice. Um, a lot of us have experienced that, whether it's residency electives or or fellowships, for sure. Um, you know, I'm I'm curious what what your thoughts are. I I sort of I don't know whether it's right or wrong, but I usually give the residents when they come to me and ask that question a twofold answer. I, I say you can open all the doors in the world, 
based on, you know, like we said, connections with maybe your mentors to that subspecialty field or given institutions, or you can simply make your CV and your application package on paper undeniable. So dropping a, a phone book of publications in front of, you know, a, an applicant committee um, is hard to ignore. So I, I sort of think that there's there's two ways to do it. And you certainly see on the receiving side, on the, on the faculty selection side, uh, examples of both. Greg, Greg, what do you think of that uh, that concept? As I uh, as I was mentioning earlier, that you know, certainly I, I've um, I have I've definitely taken uh, and have you know executed the one route, which is, um, with, you know, which is that kind of uh, you know, with some research, um, kind of reaching out and trying to cultivate something like de novo. Um, and I think just, you know, kind of really relying on, on, um, on putting yourself out there um, and, um, and, and making it, you know, you know, really kind of presenting a case and then making it easy for someone to say yes. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of, um, I think that there's a lot to say about that um, and that can be successful. I, I totally agree though, that I think, um, that that's probably not that you know that's pro that's probably not a dependable route um, and there's absolutely no doubt as you know when I I think I was a little bit naive um, until I went down to the U.S. Um, and you know that first couple of weeks at MSK and you realize you know what the other people in the room have accomplished in residency what they're bringing from a research background, from a, from a publication background, and then the skills that they've had to acquire in doing that. Like, you know, the fact that they've pumped out 20 publications, um, you know, they, those aren't just 20 publications to pad a CV. They, they've also had to work incredibly hard. Um, and there's a huge amount of subtle learning and skills that they've acquired along the way to like get something to publication. And I think that that is what is recognized. Um, um, and and they are able to converse and move around in a in, an, in, a, in a research world um, much more easily than someone who doesn't have that same depth. And I think that that's you know that that certainly goes a very long way. And there's no doubt that if you're kind of coming from a Canadian program, if you are interested in fellowship opportunities that are either going to be part of a North American wide match or you're, you are, you are competing against American applicants or want to go down to the U S um, that you, you, you know, that that is going to have to be a part of your game and that that is going to have to be a part of your process um, in order for you to be successful. So I, I, I totally agree. I, I think there there are kind of multiple approaches. I think combining, you know, I think, I think in a perfect world, I would, you know, you, you would combine kind of my initial cold email, you know, cold call, looking for opportunities, creating opportunities along with a undeniable CV, right? Um, and one that really backs up, um, really backs up your interests and speaks for itself. Yeah, I think your comments are dead on about research in particular, and not because you may have a career that's heavy in research going forward, but you're exactly right. It shows the faculty selectors or selection committee that you can take a project or ideally multiple projects from start to finish, meaning you're, you're a finisher totally. um, and you have insight into more than just 
the technique of a laparoscopic cholecystectomy or a given procedure, you have that greater sort of wider view. Uh, and, and that's clearly very, very powerful. And I, I'll tell you that, again, on this side of the equation, it is a really strong predictor for a successful fellow. It's, it's not the only predictor and it's not always right, but in general, it's quite a reliable measure. So you're, you're exactly right. And I, I do worry, um, you know, it's particularly in Canada, less so in the US, that our residencies, as they drift away from completing research projects and it becomes less of a, of a core tenant, um, that that's gonna hurt some of the applications, particularly to the US. Um, as an applicant, you know, um, standing out, I completely agree with Dr. Ball. You know, there are two ways to do this. Again, if you have made up your mind early in your residency about, you know, wanting to do something particular, then plan for it. You know, um, if you're going to go to a competitive fellowship, surgical oncology, peds, even hepatobiliary now, you know, plan like you could potentially take a year or two in the middle to do some more research, you know, to build up your CV. Um, I was reading an article, you know, preparing for this talk a little bit and looking at um, the surgical oncology match. And it seems like that the programs want at least one first author publication published in a reputable journal and, you know, at least five um, publications that you're a part of. And, you know, I think with time, it's just going to get even harder to, um, you know, get into these competitive fellowships because everybody now wants to specialize, you know, especially in the U.S., like out of the 10 surgery residents that we had, I think only one went into the community and the rest um, all are doing uh, specialty fellowships. And so how are you going to decide between one person and the other, especially to get through the door? Like, you know, there are going to be cutoffs for every program, you know, be it the number of publications, be it your scores. You know, we have the app site in the U.S. and I'm sure there's something similar here in Canada. So, you know, plan ahead, put in the hard work, you know, talk to your mentors. If you don't have a specific mentor in your program, talk to your mentors, they may know somebody like if you, you know, like we didn't do Pete surgery uh, as an intern, and then as a fourth year. So if you know, you want to do that, you know, talk to your current general surgery mentors, they may have friends from med school, or, you know, somebody else who they can hook you up to, to be as mentors, and you'll be surprised, like how small this world is. And there will be people who will help you out to get to what you want to do. So I think we've all highlighted how uh, important your CV is and all this. How, what do you th- where do you think electives fit into this equation, uh, Salila? How important are electives in in securing a fellowship? And then um, when you're on your electives, what do you what do you think are some key important things to do uh, to stand out while you're on elective? Yeah. So I think electives. I think of them as a double-edged sword, honestly. You know, uh, while you have a chance to go and show them how good you are, there is also a chance they're not going to like you. You know, they may potentially give you, uh, you know, an invite saying that, okay, fine, they were here for, you know, an elective, but they may not like you. So, you know, 30 minutes is different from spending four weeks with them. So, you know, be careful about deciding to do electives, certainly for fellowships. Um, you know, I think the letters, the scores, the work you've put in, you know, speak volumes as well. So 
if you're really struggling deciding between places, you know, maybe doing an elective may be helpful, but um, I didn't do an elective for HBB, um, you know, but I did spend um, my six months in my final year on the HBB service. Like I wanted to be ready when I start as a HBB fellow, um, you know, so I think it's it's something very personal. Um, it, it also depends. I, I don't know if the Canadian residents do more, um, you know, electives, but certainly the U.S. residents, it varies from program to program. As for doing, you know, but I'll go back to my, um, like I said, I did three months of electives in, um, you know, medical school, and that's how I decided I really want to come to U.S. to train here. So it certainly set a pathway for me. So again, you know, you just have to be careful. Um, as about doing well in electives, you know, it's it I think it just really boils down to small things like be on time, you know, be there available for anything and everything on the service. Think of yourself as part of the team. Um, you know, you want to be enthusiastic, but then there's, uh, you know, there's a line that sometimes you cross and you're you're like essentially on the nerves for. And I think we've all had students like that, certainly, you know, in our services or some even residents where, you know, they're overzealous. They want to do a lot, but then they don't know when to keep quiet or, you know, when's the appropriate time to ask questions. You know, they're not judging you on how good your skills are because that can be taught, but they're really looking as a person, like, you know, are you somebody that they can work for, like I said, for a year or two? Are you, you know, are you somebody who they can stand for in the operating room, like, you know, for six, eight hours, if you have a long case, are they, are they willing to do that? Are they going to trust you with their patients? You know, so those are the key things. So I think it really boils down to how you are and how you present yourself as a person more than, you know, what skill set you take. Um, yeah. I realize, uh, you know, you two both are probably unique in, in terms of your um, fellowship path and, and perhaps, uh, you know, electives actually maybe didn't play as much of a role for, for either of you in your, your fellowships. Um, Greg, what are your thoughts in, in, on electives and uh, did you do any electives um, in surgical oncology prior to your, your application and, and how important do you think those are in retrospect? So I did not do, I, I did not do any surgical oncology electives. Um, as I said, I was a kind of, I was late to the game. Um, I did trauma, pediatric surgery electives, had used up what elective time I had before I realized that surgical oncology was for me. So I think that that highlights that electives are not essential to get a fellowship spot, right? Like, I don't think I could be faulted for not you know, for not doing, for not doing electives. Um, I just, you know, just did not realize that that was going to be uh, my kind of ultimate kind of calling or pathway. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it highlights that you don't necessarily need to have electives. Are they helpful? I think certainly it, it definitely taps you into um, the the community. So if you do, if you spend some time across the country, you know, you meet the players, you meet the people who are, who, who are kind of leading the field, um, whether it's in Canada or the U S um, uh, you meet the other kind of uh, the other applicants. Um, and so I think it definitely gives you a much broader kind of understanding. It kind of certainly broadens your scope in terms of uh, practice patterns. And uh, so there's a lot of benefit um, and, um, 
and then you're, you're just you're also a familiar face. Um, there are other ways of doing that though, and you don't need to do an elective to be a familiar face to have your name out there, whether it's through research, through committees. There are lots of ways that I think you can mirror some of those benefits. Um, so I guess in the end, I don't think it's essential. I think it's certainly uh, helpful for the applicant that kind of um, realizes that that's uh, an important part or is, is a pathway early on. Um, but for those who are late, you don't need to beat yourself up. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, and there are other ways that you can um, generate the same opportunities that electives do. One more comment I'll make for electives is, you know, a lot of times, at least for students, I've seen that for medical students, um, you know, when you're going to an institution, make sure you make arrangements, you know, early on to make appointments to meet with the leadership there. So as a student, if you're going on electives, make sure you're meeting the program director. If you can, you know, go ahead and make an appointment with the probably chief of surgery as well. I would say if a resident, you're going there, make sure if, you know, you're not directly working with the fellowship director, do the same. Have exit interviews, you know, it, it just really shows how interested you are. And certainly that feedback is going to help you later when you visit them for an second interview or, you know, even for other interviews overall for fellowships. That's a good point, Salila. And I, I would echo what you said, Greg, and then, and then maybe add to it. Sometimes the electives we do uh, as residents are just like the, your, your description of what we do as medical students. It can be more for us than, than even, uh, you know, the, the reverse. And my personal story is very much like that. I figured out quite early I wanted to do trauma as part of my job uh, within residency. And I went down for 10 weeks to a, um, a very well-known U.S. Um, trauma program uh, where some of my mentors had trained previously. And I realized quite quickly that that probably it wasn't as, as good as I maybe wanted, or maybe I should say it wasn't the right fit for me. I wanted a higher volume experience. And to be honest, if I hadn't done that, um, I probably would have ended up there, I, I suspect, just based on where it was and the and the the sort of lore that surrounded it. Um, but certainly where I ended up at the end of the day, again, was a place I hadn't done an elective, which was Emory. Um, and, and that was for sure a, an incredible, I would say the, probably the best experience in the U.S. So, you know, it's a little bit of us interviewing them too as the applicant, there's no doubt. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys specifically about um, asking or, or, or trying to figure out who should write your reference letters. And I'll just say again, from the other side of the equation that the reality is, I don't know, 95 or 99% of the letters are all great. Like they all say this, this candidate is superb. I support them a hundred percent. They're going to make a great surgical oncologist or, or breast surgeon or whatever that is. So on our side of the equation, they can be quite difficult to decipher. There is certain code words for sure that some people will use, but in general, um, they're all quite good. Um, do you guys have any advice about, about who to ask and, and how to ask? Like Dr. Ball said, all letters are going to be great. So, you know, you you have to make sure that your letters are exemplary, you know, or at least one of them stands out as being the best. Um a couple of things, you know, if you're applying for a certain field, like, you know, I'll, I'll take example of hepatobiliary, and I don't have a single letter from a hepatobiliary surgeon, that's a red flag. You know, why is the department not supporting me, um, you know, in doing what I want to do? But that being said, doesn't mean all three or four, depending on how many letters you're using, have to be from the all, all from hepatobiliary surgeons, you know, 
uh, a general surgery mentor or my program director may know me better than one of the other surgeons who I haven't worked with or don't have that much of a personal relationship. And I think you just have to be upfront about it. I, I don't think, you know, there are going to be very few attendings who are going to refuse to write letters, but you can be upfront about it and tell them, is this going to be a strong letter? And, you know, I think you can get a general sense that is, is this really going to be one of your strongest letters that you should use versus is this just going to be general run of the mill, you know, a good applicant, which like Dr. Ball said, a lot of other people will have. So, you know, a few things to keep in mind. And um, just to, you know, just to add to that, um, yeah, I think for sure, like for sure, for sure, you, you need to have like, you know, if there's a, if all the letters are good, then, you know, common sense would dictate that, you know, make sure, like, if you don't have the foresight to, to, in, in, to ensure that your letters are also good, right, then, then that will immediately, dis, you know, that will immediately disqualify you from the process, right? So, um, you know, it's, you know, the letters are about, in many ways, identifying red flags. So, Make sure you don't have any red flags. You know, two, you 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 totally, you one hundred percent, you know, have to have the backing of your local um, subspecialty. You know, and I think that, as Celia said, like that's a must because otherwise, that is a subtle red flag. Um, and I think we hear stories anecdotally of, of, of that happening, and, and that's not an uncommon theme that I that I've come across in the in the past. Um, and I guess the third thing is. Um, it, it, it does appear to me that, you know, there, it's a super small community. Um, and it definitely helps. I, I think that, the, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's probably actually quite important to realize, and I don't like to use this word, but like, what is the pedigree of, you know, what is the, what is the family tree of, of your mentor? your institution, where do they have connections? Who were their mentors? Because even though it's a small community, there is definitely a pull. There's going to be a familiarity. There's going to be a, a relationship um, that your mentors have with where, where they trained. And, and that, you know, those letters, if, if, if it's also someone who you work closely with and have a really good relationship with, those letters are going to mean something maybe a little bit more, I think. And so, uh, I think that's important to keep in mind because letters that are tied to a history, um, both kind of academically and, and personally, I, I think probably kind of help help them float to the top a little bit easier. I think that's, uh, uh, in my own experience, has been uh, important. And, and you really do realize what a small world it is and, and how much uh, that personal touch in, in a reference letter really matters when when it's two people who train at the same same place or who knew each other from residency, how much that uh, that makes a difference. Um, I <laughs> I wanted to ask you both about the dreaded personal letter, and I I, I certainly struggled writing my personal letters for uh, for fellowship because it's uh, you know you, you you sometimes feel like you have to write this award winning Pulitzer Prize uh, essay. Um, and and I'm not sure that that's actually right, or that, or that uh, programs really uh, feel the same way about you writing a, a novel or an essay for for your personal letter. 
Um, so Lila, what do you have any thoughts about uh, how to how to write a good personal letter? Yeah, so I'll say you know, like you said, you you want you wanted to be shining and you wanted to be a great essay, but honestly, like I think, just make it simple, just and have and just you know, interesting. Honestly, it doesn't have to be long. It should just tell a story about you and why you are here, where you are, and what do you want to do. Um, you know, I was reading this article in, um, I think, Journal of Surgical Oncology, where they said that the personal letter is, you know, the least likely of the things to matter in the, you know, when they're coming to decide uh, and choosing a, a candidate. But certainly if there if there's a close competition, like, you know, especially for residency, if there are four or five people or for fellowship, there are like two people they're trying to decide that may really make or break the game for you. So, you know, don't underestimate the importance of it. But like I said, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy with like big words, um, you know, just make it simple. And like I said, make it personable and interesting. Um, you know, it also serves as a platform sometimes for your interviews. So be ready to like answer questions that you've written in there, like, you know, don't write anything that you're sensitive about or are not comfortable discussing in your interview. Um, and certainly don't lie about things, you know, like uh, in this world today, everything is a click away. You mentioned something that you've done and you actually haven't. People are going to find out about it. So, you know, just be authentic. Having, you know, again, I, I think I have a, a limited experience with this, but certainly I, I've read letters in the past. I, I've, I've written many myself and, and it seems like a key um, it is to understand that, yeah, it's probably, it's probably not, um, the most important thing in your package, but again, it can identify red flags. And so, um, you know, just keep it simple. Don't write anything crazy. Um, you know, and, and have someone else look at it, you know, have someone else outside of, of, um, of medicine, perhaps have a look at it. Cause you're just looking for, um, kind of a genuine kind of letter of intent. And, you know, it seems like you know, the people that kind of go on, you know, at tangents or, or, or weave these complex stories, you either a get lost or it gives you a weird vibe. Um, you're just trying to state your intent um, and then get you in the front door to let, um, let the interview or your letters or your CV do the talking. I think the, my, my sense and my approach to it was, um, talk about uh, why you wanted to do your felt particular specialty and then uh, you know highlight a few things that, that make you stand out but I, I think that's so 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 critical that you actually get someone um, to read it and uh, and to keep it simple you guys are both now approaching sort of the, the tail ends of your fellowship um, and I'm curious how you structured your time as fellows uh, as a fellow Greg um, particularly, I know there, there's a huge breadth of knowledge um, to actually get through in addition to actually improving your technical skills in the operating room. How did you structure your time in terms of reading, uh, clinical activities, uh, and do you have any advice for people who are about to start their fellowships as to get uh, the most out of it? I think in an ideal world, you would know where you're going to end up after your fellowship. Um, and um, and, and so I think that how you structure your fellowship is, uh, is, is, is to a certain degree, I think it, it should be, I think it's designed to be 
kind of tailored to the additional skills that you want to acquire, both from a technical and from a decision-making point of view, that will allow you to excel, um, you know, where you see yourself ending up, you know, so in the environment, in the niche, uh, or in the community, uh, filling, you know, a particular role. Um, and so I think, uh, I think an early understanding that you'll be able to tailor, um, you'll be better able to tailor your training if you have an idea and if you're working towards um, a particular job. Now that's easier said than done. Um, that whole finding a job bit is just as nebulous and could be another podcast, but I think that's important. And if you have something in mind, thinking about that early, working towards that, because I think it will really help. It really help narrow your focus and, and, and allow you to really get the absolute most out of your fellowship. Um, on you know, I guess on top of that, I would say that you have to know coming in what your weaknesses are. Um, so regardless of where you think you might end up, if if there is a if there's something that you've come out of residency with not a, a huge amount of exposure in, I, I think that's part of being kind of a reflective resident, a reflective surgeon. What are your weaknesses? Um, you know, um, and then addressing those head on because this is kind of your last opportunity as a full-time trainee to just devote time to that, right? And it, it's precious opportunity. Um, and then I think finally, when it comes to, when it comes to reading and teaching, like I personally find that um, if you can't teach it, you probably don't know it, right? And so I like the idea of, of trying to do as much teaching as possible both from a selfish point of view, because if, if you find yourself kind of stumbling or kind of, you know, fluffing over a certain topic, then all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I don't really have that down cold, right? Um, and so constant teaching on the ward, on the whiteboard, it helps me, it, it helps me reflect on, on, on what I need to, what additional knowledge I need to pick up. Um, and I think it also helps just keep it regular. Um, just like in residency, I think a slow, um, a slow, steady accumulation is is is, is always better than, um, than 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 cramming. And, and for me, that's about um, either trying to have a regular schedule of some questions or some reading, um, or, or or teaching, as I said. Um, and I guess just one last point on that, um, where you have perhaps a little bit more flexibility as a fellow than you do a resident. I found a particularly useful strategy for me um, on certain on certain rotations in my fellowship has been actually um, doing a better job of prepping for clinic. Um, and that's kind of allowed me to then take that clinic visit kind of to the next level, um, especially if there's some kind of complex new patients. Uh, it's really, I find it's been really helpful to kind of have a look at that list and really kind of dig into that patient before the clinical encounter, you know, where time allows. I've certainly, you know, in talking with the teaching, I've certainly benefited from your 6.30 a.m. Uh, fully white-coated, tied-up uh, uh, <laughs> teaching sessions on, on the 10th floor of, uh, of the Foothills Hospital. So I, I'll, I'll say that it, uh, I've certainly benefited as a resident. So Lila, what, what advice do you have about in, in terms of structuring your time as a fellow um, and, and focusing uh, your learning uh, during fellowship. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say is, you know, 
this is not easy. <laughs> there is a lot of behind the scenes work that needs to be done when you're a fellow, which you probably don't appreciate as a resident, which is, you know, the sort of same thing that you don't appreciate as a medical student, what, you know, for the residents. Um, but I think the key thing is to be organized, um, you know, make sure you have, a, you know, a weekly or a monthly planner, like know what cases you're going to have for the next few weeks. Like, you know, if if you don't have much information about the recent literature in terms of management or, you know, the disease process itself that you are not familiar with, you know, give yourself some time to come up with that. Um, you know, read, read about that. And don't underestimate, like, you know, Greg said, uh, don't underestimate the importance of clinic, you know, this is the time where, where you're going to be deciding not only about the patients that you're going to be operating on, but, you know, deciding not when not to operate on patients. And I think sometimes as a resident, you, you know, you don't appreciate that. But in a few months time, you will be in those shoes where you have to make that decision. Um, there's, you know, you can maybe call your mentors, but you know, it's going to be hard and you're going to be in those tough shoes. And so the more you do that, the more patients you see, the better, you know, you're going to get and the more comfortable you're going to get for sure. Um, yeah, I think that's what I would say, you know, and like Greg said, obviously, if you can't teach something, you don't know it well, be honest about it. If I if I don't know the answer to something, and I think Greg was on service, and we had, you know, quite a few discussions, and, you know, there were things that I didn't know the answer to. And I, you know, we were like, okay, let's look it up, you look this up, and I'll look this up. And, you know, it, it certainly helps. And you'll be surprised how sometimes, you know, question from a resident, or even a medical student, or sometimes even nursing staff on the floor, can certainly just lead you down a track, um, you know, where you really need to read up a lot on a certain topic, which you thought you knew well. Just to drill down a little bit of, uh, more about the the reading side of this, um, did you get? Did you guys both, um, uh, Greg, maybe to start? Did you um, partic- pick a particular text and and sort of make a, a regular reading schedule, uh, or did you, uh, as you say, read around uh, certain cases or? topics that you you, you uh, thought were important uh, as you went through? When I started fellowship, I was uh, mostly just reading around, uh, reading around the cases and the clinics for sure. And I was using that as, I was using that as the kind of regular entry point into the literature. Um, and then on top of that, as kind of mentioned, um, you know, the kind of the fairly regular Wednesday morning, you know, teaching rounds um, that kind of kept me on a fairly predictable um, uh, schedule. Uh, certainly now, as you know, we're, we're kind of coming to a, you know a bit of a close. The last six months, we have an exam at the end. Uh, I certainly have made a schedule um, just to make sure that I am, you know, identifying what I need to kind of, you know, now there's a timeline, making sure I'm covering the material I need to, um, you know with the with, with a particular again point they, that being an exam at the end as kind of a hard um as kind of a hard hurdle um or like a like a physical hurdle to to uh, to jump with regards to textbook or um you know in, in surgical oncology and a lot of the you know fields right like it's moving so quickly by the time it's in a textbook you know people say it, it's already um outdated i i think that that's not necessarily true um there is still a huge amount and certainly all of my old mentors have said and have loved to remind you that you know there is 
publications from before you know 2010 or there are publications from before 2000 there's you know there obviously is a huge body of background literature that has got that has got us to the point where we are and is still super relevant um and i do find that textbooks like in surgical oncology we have a um morita um there's a, a is the lead author on a on kind of a general complex surgical oncology textbook um and and it was published in, in 2017 and it's still very useful because it, it brings you up to 2017 right and it's synthesized it's it's condensed the reference list is fantastic right and then yeah you have to supplement that 100 right but it does provide a nice um format i think for me for my learning style uh, and it does provide a nice summary um, to kind of bring you up to speed in, in areas that you may be a little bit more deficient. Um, yeah, I would say that I do have a textbook, which is, you know, Bloomgards, but that doesn't mean I pick it up every day, which pr I probably should. And even if I read one uh, page a day, but, you know, yeah, just have one textbook that you can refer to. Um, and, you know, one thing I would say that I have recently um, noticed is that my you know, husband, who's a surgery resident, was always on my back to actually join Twitter. And I always held back saying that, no, I don't want to. And, you know, I've done this recently where I have actually joined Twitter and then, you know, just following because all these, um, you know, surgery journals have their own pages or like your mentors or the big names in the field, you'll be surprised if all of them are on Twitter. And if you follow them, you know, sometimes they will have really valuable advice or they will highlight, you know, um, some of the journal articles that you may not have noticed that have come out recently. And so, you know, this is something that I have recently started doing. And I think it's worth doing, you know, maybe spending five minutes, don't do it socially and, you know, making social friends, but certainly for professional things, I think it, it's a good addition where sometimes I, cause I cannot certainly go through like 10 different, uh, you know, surgery journals, but certainly having the right people to follow and them highlighting the appropriate journals or the articles has, uh, I think been a good recent find, and, you know, look into it. You may, you may be surprised. I'm very biased cause uh, you guys probably <laughs> both know that I love Twitter. I think it's the best thing ever, and I, I love reading it. I probably spent too much time on Twitter, but I would echo what you said, uh, that Twitter is a very valuable resource. In closing, and, and thank you guys both again for, for, for giving your time. Uh, I think this is going to be very useful for, for anyone who's looking into doing a fellowship. Um, so Lila, maybe I could ask you, if you had to go back and do anything differently, I, I know you're not completely done, but if if you had to do anything differently uh, during your fellowship, uh, knowing what you know now, what would that have been and, and why? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I would say um, one thing would be, you know, and it's I think that that's going to stay forever, like, you know, reading more. I always thought that that I could do a better job of that during residency. And I still feel I could have done a better job in fellowship. The other thing I would say is, you know, like uh, start early. Like I picked up some of the research projects a little bit late in the game. I, and I, I think, you know, I, I'm sure I'll be able to still finish it, but, you know, certainly for taking things onto, you know, a little bit next level, like I started working on a um, randomized control trial with Dr. Ball just recently. And, you know, just with every, all the situation going on right now, and that's been on a whole. So, you know, had I started working on that earlier in the fellowship, um, maybe, you know, things may be a little bit different. We would 
probably have some, you know, early data. So, you know, that's what I would say. The other thing I would say is, you know, like, it's a it's a difficult, you know, like we had talked about the transition being a resident and a fellow, the work will get done, you know, don't try to do everything yourself, like, you know, learn to delegate, you need to make time for yourself, you know, be it for reading, be it for, you know, your wellness, be it for going home and, you know, doing 10 minutes of workout. So just, just, you know, make sure that you use your team well. I think, you know, initially I had a hard time of letting go, like, you know, uh, like I have to look into the charts again and check on numbers again, you know, if, if not before leaving, you know, at night, you know, things will get done. There are people who are going to take care of those things. So, you know, I think trusting a little bit more um, than I initially used to than now I do. Um, I think if I did that earlier on, maybe would have given me a little bit more time to spend in doing other things than, you know, just being in the hospital. Yeah. I, I thought about this question before the podcast um, and, uh, um, you know, before the recording. And I I think the one thing that, that jumped out is, I think the one thing that that kind of really jumped out to me was, you know, one, you know, you really have to like be honest, you know, be be honest with yourself about what about what about what you need from the fellowship. Um, and I think if I was to do one thing differently, you know, through both, um, it's it's just being even. There's always you can always be. There's always a there's always room for 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 better communication um, and better feedback. Um, and if you're not, you know, it, it's a short period of time. It's a brilliant opportunity, um, and and it goes by quickly. You know, it goes by in a flash, especially when you're especially when you're busy and trying to juggle a couple different balls. So you really have to be honest with yourself. You know, and there's always a, there's always room for better communication about what you, about what what you need, you know, um, uh, to to maximize um, your fellowship opportunity, right? And so that's about communicating that with your with your with your preceptors, with the services that you're on. Um, and I think that there's I've always found that when that is communicated, um, people are very receptive to that, right? Um, by this point, you are, you know, you are a fellow, you know, you're a, you are a general surgeon, you have something to, you have something to bring to the table, right? And, and when you come to people um, and say, you know, you know what, I, I'm not getting this. Um, and this is how I, this, this is how I want to um, get more exposure, or this is what I want to do differently. Um, and you come to them with a kind of a plan. Uh, again, you know, I guess that's a theme I keep coming back to. People are really receptive. And I certainly probably, you know, I, I definitely could have done a better job at, at various points in my fellowship doing that, expressing that um, to, to just, you know, to milk out even more from um, the opportunity. Um, that would be kind of my only last advice. Um, just before we close, I, I forgot to ask you guys earlier, uh, and, and uh, particularly Greg, I think this would be a question for you. For Canadian residents looking to go to the U.S., do you have any um, suggestions regarding visas, USMLEs, uh, um, all that kind of uh, you know administrative stuff that uh, does sometimes become important uh, when trying to go down to the U.S.? 
Yeah, for sure. Because I definitely I've come across this numerous times. There is a ton of like misinformation. And I think, you know, number one, do your own research. You know, there's a lot of anecdote and you'll hear other residents and other people tell you, oh, you need to have the USMLE for every program. It's just not true, right? Like it is very state dependent. It is hospital dependent. You know, are you at a a private hospital, a, a, you know, a, um, a, a, you know, a, a public facility, is it a private cancer center? Is it, you know, you've really got to look at the individual program and then reach out. They all have huge departments of people that deal with, with, with bringing in, um, you know, uh, bringing in foreign talent, right? They all have human resource departments. They're a simple email away and, and they will clarify exactly what you need, right? Uh, I even found some of the blogs, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of, there's a lot of general information that is, is actually not that useful. Um, and so you got to identify what are the programs you're interested in and then actually Go to their websites and then take it a step further. You know, if you're really interested, and in, and in, in talk to either, you know, past fellows, sure, but just go straight to, you know, their their HR department and be like, hey, this is like I'm Canadian. I have a I'm gonna have a I'm I already have a, a, I will be like a Canadian fellow, right? Um, board certified. You know, what do I need from you guys, um, or what do I need um, to to have the appropriate uh, license at your facility and everyone's going to be different. And so I think it's, if there's one take home message is, it's kind of like, believe no one, do your own research. And it's, it seems like it's very uh, state and, and institution specific. And Mayor, I'll just make one more uh, comment. You know, um, I met a lot of U.S. applicants who will be hesitant to apply to Canadian programs, especially for fellowships, thinking that there is a lot of paperwork that goes into it. Honestly, yes, it did span over a few months. And the only thing that took me the longest was getting my background check from FBI from the U.S. The rest was as smooth as it can be. So, you know, don't be hesitant for the U.S. applicants to apply to Canadian programs. I've thoroughly enjoyed my time here and, you know, wouldn't change my decision if I had to go back. So, um, you know, and certainly happy to answer anybody's questions uh, if they have uh, any. Yeah, I would say the same thing. Like in New York, it was actually surprisingly easy. I did not need USMLE. Uh, the visa was relatively straightforward. It was actually a lot more difficult to get my two-month elective in Cape Town than it was to go to New York. So, Salula, Greg, thank you guys so much for coming Cold Steel. Absolutely fantastic. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.